Shawshank Redemption had two main characters. You had Tim Robbins, who played a character named Andy. You had the great Morgan Freeman, played a character named Red. And in the movie Red and Andy, their relationship didn't start off great. Red was very suspicious of Andy. He was even on the record saying that just a, a... a, a stiff breeze could like, just knock him over. But Andy, in this prison, even though he was unjustly uh, arrested, tried, sentenced to prison, he was very kind. So in prison, he would do people's taxes. He loved music and would sometimes get in trouble because he wanted other inmates to have access to music that could build up their own soul. They could just lift them up for a minute. And there was a warden there who was... Uh, very hard on Andy. There were times when that warden would persecute him and other times where he would hand him a Bible and tell him that salvation is found in this. The warden was quite hypocritical. Yet it was in that Bible that salvation, in a way, did come to Andy because in that Bible is where he kept an instrument that he would use at night to scrape a hole in his door in his cell, in his wall in his cell, that would ultimately lead to his freedom. He would store that instrument in Exodus chapter 1, which is the chapter in the Bible, or the book in the Bible, that tells us about the deliverance of the people of God. So when he decided to break free, he went through the wall into a sewer. For 500 yards, he climbed through a sewer pipe until he fell into a river which washed him clean. Now, I'm not making Shawshank Redemption out to be the best power of the gospel story that you have ever heard before even though it's good, and it's also not a family movie that you need to go home with your kids and sing Kumbaya and pray prayers and eat lunch and and watch the movie. But throughout the movie, Red and Andy have conversations about hope. And maybe not so much conversations, they had arguments about hope. Because Red would say things like, hope is a dangerous thing. Because when people are reaching for hope, it can drive them insane. Yet Andy would say things like, now hope is a good thing. In fact, hope is the best thing because hope reminds us that good things never die. So Red ended up being released from prison. And upon his release, he started going back to life, yet he, he discovered in his own life that trying to live without hope like, couldn't sustain him through life. So he found himself left with two choices. Either there was the choice of taking his own life and just ending it all, or there was the choice of doing something that would send him back to prison because that was the life he had known pretty much his entire life. But he had made a promise to Andy. And the promise was that there was a tree in a specific place, and under that tree was a treasure, and in that treasure was all the money that Red would need. And toward the very end of the movie... Here's what Red says. I am so excited I can barely sit still or hold a thought in my head. I hope I can make it across the border. I hope to see my friend and shake his hand. I hope the Pacific is as blue as it has been in my dreams. I hope. Are you in need of just a little bit of hope today? On Thursday was what many people around the world call the Day of Ascension. 40 days after Easter, a day which people honor and maybe we could say celebrate the day Jesus ascended into the heavens. And I want to talk about the ascension today. I don't know if I've ever preached a story on the ascension of Jesus and why this is good news for us. 
Because when you think about the ascension and Jesus' physical body ascending into the heavens, I don't know if that's something you celebrate or you question. Like, you know, like, maybe your life would be a lot better if the physical presence of Jesus was here, maybe that it didn't descend. I feel sometimes like one of my hardest jobs is to stand on this stage in front of people, in front of those of you online, and to offer up a word of hope in a time when sometimes it's really hard to cling to hope. I look forward to the days when I can stand up and preach where the headlines of the past week were headlines like, flowers grew, the grizzlies won, like, that's kind of it. And it's hard when what we see in the headlines... And I know every country has stuff they're dealing with, but here for us, where you see tragic moments of violence, whether it's in Buffalo or California this past week in Texas, things that break our hearts, like these things are heavy to carry. Like it's heavy to carry even into your prayer life when we experience different forms of tragedy and grief. Like how do we even carry these to God? How do we voice ourselves to God? And to know... Many of you saw in the headlines that the Southern Baptist Convention this past week went public with abusers in their churches. And I know churches all over the world have had this happen. But I also know that the sermon I have preached in the last five years that have had more downloads and more people have listened to it out of anything I've done in the last five, maybe my entire preaching career was a sermon I preached back in 2018 on uh, abuse survivors where I tried to offer up a word of hope to the many people, especially the many women in our church. And I know that there are moments like this past week where there are, there are times when trauma is triggered, where there are events in the world that happen that trigger trauma. And it can take you back to moments in your life when you have experienced trauma. So for those of you in this space today or online today, like there are times you just need to hear a leader and a church leader stand up in front of you and say, for those of you who have experienced abuse in your life, I am so sorry for what has happened to you. And it's not your fault. And you need to know God is for you and that trauma is something, and I hate this, unfortunately this is true, trauma is something you have to carry for the rest of your life. But in and through Jesus and in and through the church, you don't have to carry it alone. And we carry it with you. So for all the heaviness we bring into this space, I know we have people who have lost loved ones tragically over the last week. For all the heaviness, I just want to try to offer up a word of hope to us this morning. Philip Yancey is the author I've read more of than probably any other person out there. You name a Yancey book, there's a good chance I've read it. Two of my top five favorite books of all time are Philip Yancey books. And one of the things I love about Philip Yancey is he writes on faith and spirituality, but he also talks a lot about suffering and pain. And he doesn't feel like he has to write his books and then tie them up with a real pretty bow and then throw these little Christian cliches on top to make everybody feel better about yourself. Like he can leave it kind of messy, yet hopeful about the resurrection of Jesus. I love this about him. Philip Yancey has been very open about some of his doubts in life. And he says that the ascension of Jesus has been the greatest challenge to his faith Out of any of the other challenges out there, the ascension of Jesus is the greatest challenge. Not because he questions whether it happened or not, but because he questions why it happened. So here's what Philip Yancey says. It challenges me more than the problem of pain, more than the difficulty of harmonizing science in the Bible, more than belief in the resurrection and other miracles. For me, what has happened since Jesus' departure strikes at the core of my faith. 
Would it not have been better if the ascension had never happened? If Jesus had stayed on earth, he could answer our questions, solve our doubts, mediate our disputes of doctrine and policy. Like, do you think your life would be better if you had contact with the physical presence of Jesus? Maybe once a day, once a week, once a month, maybe just once a year, a 15-minute sit-down with the physical presence of Jesus. Do you think you would sin less? Do you think you would believe more? Do you think you would view TikTok less and social media less and invest in people more? Like if you knew you had access to the physical body of Jesus, yet the one we believe in and the one we sing about and the one that when we take communion we are focusing on and the one we have decided to surrender our lives to in baptism, he's the one that said this in John chapter 16 verse 7. Jesus says this, but very truly I tell you, it is for your good or it is to your advantage that I am going away. Because unless I go away, the advocate will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. Jesus thinks so much about his ascension and the Holy Spirit being sent into the lives of people that Jesus is on the record saying, you are better off with the physical body of Jesus ascending into the heavens and the Holy Spirit coming. You are better off. All right, so here's what I want to do. I want to walk us through the final words of the Gospels, and I want to walk you through a couple of ascension stories in the Gospels because I want you today to go home believing that the ascension is good. Like, this is good for the world. And we're going to do this like what I did two weeks ago. So we're going to divide up sections, all right? So over here to my right, some of you here two weeks ago, I need you in Matthew chapter 28. Matthew 28 that's the only chapter you're going to be in. So when I call out a verse, you're in Matthew 28, verses 16 through 20, just five verses. If you're online, I know Glenn Marie Haley, I know the Spearses are online with us today. You can choose whatever you want to choose, all right? This is my Mark section right here. Mark chapter 16, verses 14 through 20, just those seven verses. Luke chapter 24, verses 50 through 53, just a few verses at the very end of Luke. And I told the John crowd a couple of weeks ago, like, John, he's just a little different. Like, John's a little different, all right? And there really aren't final words, and there really aren't, there's not an ascension story. So for my John crowd, here's your role today. You're going to love it. Two weeks ago, one thing I loved is after the sermon, like, I got some good feedback, but some of you are like, man, if I knew you were doing that, I would have been in Mark's section, because I like Mark the best, or I would have been in Matthew's section. Today, John's section, you are going to be the amen corner of the church. So when you see me touch my left eyebrow, I need an amen or a uh-huh or a thank you Jesus that comes from you. You got it? This is your, I'm the baseball coach, so when I make the sign, I just need some kind of amen, thank you Jesus that comes from you, all right? So Jesus is Lord of all. All right, good. All right, you're good. So here's what we're going to do this morning. I just want you to look at how many people were there in the final words of Jesus. So for Matthew in verse 16 for you, for Mark in verse 14 for Luke, you don't have a verse, all right? There's not a number given. But what's the number that is given in your verse? 11. Now Matthew is specific with this. The Matthew in verse 11 says the 11 disciples. Now I don't know if this was an intentional move by Matthew or not, but I'm about to preach it like it was. 
He doesn't call them the 11 apostles. He uses the Greek word methetes. He calls them disciples. And maybe the reason Matthew does this is to remind the apostles that they are disciples forever. They are apprentices of Jesus. So in verse 16, he calls them 11 disciples. And then a couple of verses later, he's going to tell them, go and make disciples. Like you are on a lifelong journey of learning what it means to live with Jesus, in Jesus, under Jesus. And this is what we are called to as disciples of Jesus. We are on a lifelong journey of formation. All right, thank you very much. Now, let's talk about the setting of where the final words happen. What is the setting or the place? So in Matthew, you're in verse 16. Mark in verse 14. Luke, you're in verse 50. So in Matthew in verse 16, where is the setting or the place for you? Galilee. Galilee wasn't a town or a city. Galilee is a region. The large majority of the ministry of Jesus was in Galilee. When Jesus encountered the women, when he rose from the dead, he told them, you go and tell the eleven, you go tell the apostles, tell my disciples, meet me in Galilee. This is where Jesus spent the majority of his time. There's a triangle of three smaller towns that Jesus spent a lot of time in, preaching in those synagogues and healing. So it's in Galilee that it happens. Matthew or Mark, in verse 14, it's not a town or a city. What's the setting there? Yeah, as they're eating, it's at a table. So in Mark, they're inside of a house, and it's inside in a house at a table that the Great Commission is given. In Luke, what does verse 50 say? Yeah, right around Bethany. So Bethany is next to the Mount of Olives, which is just outside of Jerusalem. So this is close to where Jesus would have gone to the Garden of Gethsemane to pray. Jesus had a couple of connections in Bethany. So Bethany is where Luke ends up having his final words. Now, let's talk about worship just for a moment. Because Matthew in verse 17, and then Mark, there's not like a worship scene that we assume there's worshiping happening. But in Luke in verse 52, you have worship. Now, in Matthew's story, what happens is this. The 11 disciples, they approach Jesus in Galilee, and as they approach him in verse 17, it says, they worshiped him and some doubted. Now, I've touched on this and I've preached on this before. I I love this part of, of Matthew's story, that they are worshiping Jesus, believing that he truly is the Son of God, but they have doubts too. And I bet most Sundays, like, a lot of us are in that same place. Like, we're singing songs, and it may not be that we don't believe them, it's just we, we, believe, we want to believe them more. Like, there are times we worship, and we're bringing before God the questions we have about life. So, the 11, they are there, and they are worshiping, and they are doubting. And this is giving great comfort to me, and hopefully to you today, too, to know that there are times in your life when you will have doubts and you will have questions, and Jesus just might commission you for a mission anyway. Jesus isn't looking for people to have it all right in order to send them out on a mission. It's those people who even in their doubts are still coming into the presence of God to worship. And this is good news. Am I right? Amen. In Luke, in verse 50, you have a worship scene in verse 52 and 53. But in Luke, it is after Jesus has ascended into the heavens. So in Luke, the way it goes down is the 11 disciples, they see Jesus ascend into the heavens, and as they see it, they worship. So they're not left standing there asking, what do we do now? Or where do you think he went? They, they aren't, what they do is Jesus ascends into the heavens and then they begin to worship God. So whether it's before the Great Commission or after the Great Commission, people are in awe of what Jesus has done. And then you get a Great Commission. Matthew's is the commission most of us have known and memorized in our lives. 
where the way the, Ma- the Great Commission goes in the Gospel of Matthew is uh, Jesus says, all authority has been given to me, therefore go into the world and make disciples of all nations. The direct object of the Great Commission is to go and make disciples. Now Mark has a Great Commission too. Where verse 14 through 18, you have Jesus who says some of the same things that you read in Matthew, but Mark throws in things like, hey, when you go out, if you drink poison, you're not going to die. If you get bit by a snake, and maybe this is why some people like really like Matthews more than Mark's, is they don't want to deal with snakes or think about getting bit by snakes, right? So they just go with Matthew's gospel. But Mark has a commissioning too that happens at a table. And Luke's is a little different. Go home and read it later, all right? If you have your Bibles open in Luke, it's not so much a commissioning to go into the world and make disciples or to go and preach the gospel. And Luke, what he wants people to hear is that there was this moment that Jesus reached out his hand and he blessed them. He blessed them. And then when Jesus ascends into the heavens, the people go into the temple and they begin blessing God. There is something about a blessing that is flowing. Now, some people read stories like this Or even what I did two weeks ago, trying to walk our church through how Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the different ways they tell stories of the resurrection, that there is this uniqueness to each one of them of details they share that no one else shares, shares, but there is this unity too, that they believe there were events that happened. And some people may look at things like this and see Galilee or a table where they're inside of a house or or Bethany where there are, are these final words, and they come to the conclusion that these are contradictions, so it keeps them from wanting to understand the Bible more. I think this is greater proof that what the gospel writers wrote is true. Nobody would have written about women being the first witnesses in the gospel. If they were making this up, there's no way they would have done that because they knew a lot of people wouldn't have believed it. So the reason they all included it is because it's true. And it's very possible that Jesus gave the Great Commission multiple times. After all, how many times do you have to hear something before you get it? Now, in Acts chapter 1 verse 3, Luke, who also wrote Acts, Luke writes this, After his suffering, he presented himself to them and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of how many? Forty days. And he spoke about the kingdom of God. Now, I don't know if you've ever thought about this before, but when Jesus was tempted in the wilderness before his ministry, he was tempted how many days? Forty And after that 40 days, Jesus launched into his public ministry. And now the disciples, after the resurrection of Jesus, there's a 40 days, maybe not of so much wilderness, but a 40 days of preparation for them, for them to be launched into their ministry. For Jesus, over 40 days, when he was in the wilderness, we are told that angels attended to him, angels served him. For these disciples, for 40 days, we are told that Jesus would occasionally visit them, reveal himself to them. When Jesus was tempted for 40 days, we are told that the Spirit of God led Jesus into the wilderness and that when Jesus came out of the wilderness, the power of the Spirit of God was upon them. And we know that after 40 days, Jesus breathed the Holy Spirit upon his disciples, preparing them for ministry. So what does preparation for the kingdom of God and work in the kingdom look like for you? His ascension came after 40 days of preparation. So here's the ascension. John doesn't have an ascension story. Matthew doesn't have an ascension story. There are final words, but there's no ascension. 
Right? So it's not that Matthew doesn't believe it. It's just that Matthew wanted to end his gospel with you hearing a great commission that ends with, I am with you always. But Mark has an ascension story. And Luke does. And here's Mark's version. In verse 19 and in verse 20, Mark writes this. So the Lord Jesus, after he had spoken to them, was taken up into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God. And they went out and proclaimed the good news everywhere while the Lord worked with them. So even though Jesus had ascended into the heavens, the message they get is the Lord worked with them and confirmed the message by signs that accompanied it. And in Luke chapter 24, what you read is this, that Jesus led them out as far as Bethany and lifting up his hands, he blessed them. And while he was blessing them, he withdrew from them and was carried up into heaven. And they worshiped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy. And they were continually in the temple blessing God. So here are four points. I encourage you to take notes, write them down, put them in your phone. See if there's just one of these that can bless your life this week. Maybe one that you can share with a friend and about why the ascension is good news. And point number one is this. Jesus knew this was the plan all along. When Jesus came to this earth, Jesus knew that he was not coming to set up permanent residence 2,000 years ago, even though there will come a day when Jesus will set up permanent residence. For now, Jesus knew that when he came 2,000 years ago, the plan was for him to accomplish a task to live a life, to die a death, to conquer the grave, to launch a movement, and to ascend back into the heavens. So Jesus' day of ascension, maybe, even though we don't read it, maybe there were people who were sad about it, that the physical body, the physical body of Jesus was not with them anymore, but this is a great day for Jesus. Have you ever seen the moments when a soldier comes home from a tour and they're reunited with their family? Can you imagine what it was like when Jesus stepped back into heaven, back into the throne room of heaven, and was reunited with the angels and the hosts of heaven? With the scars in his hands and the scars in his feet, having accomplished a task that would now bring salvation to the entire world. There were hugs and high fives and people are praising God. Jesus knew this was the plan all along. Number two is this, the ascension meant reigning and completion not disinterest. So the fact that Jesus ascended, and when you read in the Bible about Jesus sitting at the right hand of God, I don't want you visualizing Jesus accomplishing a task, going up into heaven and sitting on a recliner where he has a remote in both hands. Jesus has now put himself in a place, God has placed Jesus in a place, where now Jesus is able to reign over all things. Even though Paul did not witness the ascension of Jesus, Paul wanted the church to know about it. In Ephesians chapter 4, verse 9 and 10, what Paul says is, He who descended is the same one who ascended so that he might fill all things. The reason Jesus ascended was to put himself and to posture himself in a place where he could dispense blessings and reign over the entire world. In Romans chapter 8, verse 34, the way Paul says it is, who, who can bring any condemnation against us? And it's Jesus, the one who died, the one who rose from the dead, the one who sits at the right hand of God in order to intercede for us. He is in a place of reigning, in a place of completion. So don't think 
that the ascension of Jesus means that Jesus is no longer interested in your affairs or the affairs of the world. Number three is this. Ascension doesn't mean distance. The physical body of Jesus ascending into the heavens doesn't mean distance from the divine. Remember, it's Jesus in John 16, verse 7, who says, it is better for my body to go away and for the spirit to come. So when Jesus ascended into the heavens, it's almost like there was this moment between the Trinity where there is God the Father and God the Son and God the Spirit, where the Father, Son, and Spirit are there, and Jesus has accomplished his task, and now Jesus taps the Spirit on the Spirit's shoulder and says, now it is your time to go and invade the world and convict people of their sin and transform people into my image and point people to me, and now the Spirit has been sent to live in the hearts of people, to roam the world, to bring conviction to the world about who Jesus is. And the fourth thing is this, and this is where, in the presence of God, I would say this in the most holy way. But God, there are times where what you do, like you're, you're just crazy. You're crazy. And I mean in the most holy way. So fourth one is this, the ascension means that God actually believes in people. Like God believes in humans. So Jim Hinkle, one of the ministers here in the church, is the best delegator I've ever seen. And when Jim, and when Jim delegates, and when Jim sometimes like coaches people about how to recruit volunteers, sometimes what Jim will say is, is something like this. And you know this is true. No matter what business you are, you are a part of, is that there are times you could do a task and you could do an A-plus job or even just an A-minus job. And who you are delegating to may do a B job, yet what will make the organization or the church or your family healthier is letting the person do a B job instead of you doing everything like as a perfectionist. Because anyway, God wanted to spread God's message all over the world and bring salvation to the world and implement justice throughout the world, like God could do an A-plus job every single time. Yet God chooses to delegate responsibility to humans. God did it in Genesis 1, and God has kept doing it all the way up to today. The way I like to talk about it is God never wastes salvation. Every person God saves, God intends to use for his glory, some way, somehow. So what Jesus does is all authority has been given to Jesus, and Jesus hands it to the people. Like, I'm going to ascend, but now I'm going to trust my message with people for you to preach and for you to live out in your lives. So the way Philip Yancey and John Ortberg and Leonard Sweet sometimes talk about the ascension of Jesus is that there is this long-range plan and a short-range plan. That the long-range plan is that Jesus will return and establish his kingdom forever and evil will be dealt a blow where they can never have any kind of impact on human beings again. That's the long-range plan. Short-range plan is that Jesus is commissioning his church to every day of our lives to live out a message in which we shine like the stars of heaven. Now, you get long-range and short-range planning in your own life. Like if you want to be healthier, long-range, you want to lose weight, or you want to 
you want to be healthier, your short-range plan means that you and Gus's and you and Gibson's have to break up for a little while, right? Or if your long-range plan is retirement, your short-range plan is you've got to start at some point. And for us, the long-range plan is that we know that a day is on its way when there will be no more tears and no more suffering and Jesus will reign forever and we will reign with Jesus. And the short-range plan is that God is asking us this week to play our part in honoring the story we have been entrusted with. Every Sunday with communion, we think about long-range plan and short-range plan. Long-range plan. The long-range is that death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus has changed the world forever. Eternity will honor this story. Short-range, because we touch the bread and the cup, there is a certain kind of life God is calling us to live. Stanley Hauerwas, great theologian of the last 50 years, Stanley Hauerwas says that when it comes to stories, the best stories, it's not just that you hear them, it's that you reenact them. And when he makes that quote, he's talking about the Eucharist, he's talking about communion, he's talking about the bread and the cup. That on Sunday when we take the bread and when we take the cup, we are reminded of what Jesus has done and what Jesus has accomplished. And we also ask ourselves, what does love require of me now? So one of the reasons that for the last few months we move as a church when it comes to communion is just this theological move that we are in this together. Through all the suffering in the world, we come together as a church and we move with God because God moves with us. So today we have six tables set up with the bread and the cup. And over the next few minutes, you're invited to go and receive them. And up on the screen, I'm just going to leave these two questions. We're going to leave them just for a couple of minutes for you to reflect on. What is Jesus' long-range plan? What's the short-range plan? And what is the impact this has on your life? Let's bow our heads and close our eyes. For Jesus, the fact that you ascended and that you are reigning and that you are interceding today, we thank you. And we know that your physical presence couldn't be all over the world every moment of every day. Yet there is no place as the Spirit of God can't be. So today, may we celebrate that your ascension really is good for us. And God, as the heavens celebrate the story that has changed everything, here in this moment, we celebrate the story that has changed our lives forever. That Jesus died, rose from the dead, sits at the right hand of God, and lives today to intercede for us. So in this moment, in this meal, Fill us with hope. Through Jesus we pray. Amen. As you make your way to one of the tables, we also want to have an elder up front uh, here in the front of the steps to receive you. We also have an elder in the back to receive you if there's anything we can do for you. Make your way to a table.